Well, now, we're in the Gospel of Mark. All right, if you have your notes, does anybody need notes? You know, whenever we did this at, at our church, every, you know, half the class loses their notes. You know, it's the dog ate, ate them kind of a thing. But anyway, we're in a new section of Mark that goes from chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 34. And I've encouraged you to read ahead. Um, I may just read this first section um, to begin with, um, which would be chapter 2 verse 13 through chapter 3, verse 6. So let's, let's look at it here, shall we? Uh, beginning in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there are many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Um, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now here is where I would make a paragraph break because I think he's going on to something different. All right, verse 21. No one sews a piece of garment uh, uh, unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, even though in your text it may have another heading there, this is still part of the same thought, okay, of the new wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read that what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, and how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now again, chapter break, but it's the same thought down to verse 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Okay? So there's our first section of this new section where the king inaugurates a new kingdom, which goes from 2.13 to 4.34. 
All right, so um, in this section from chapter 2, verse 13 to chapter 4, 34, we're seeing Jesus inaugurates a new kingdom which brings misunderstanding and explanation. All right? So this whole section from 2, 13 to 4, 34 deals with um, um, the kingdom that Jesus in, came to inaugurate and to preach. And so here Mark emphasizes not only the arrival, but all the things that accompany that. All right? So the first thing, we just read it. Jesus brings a new kingdom. Um, and so in, his arrival, in the arrival of his kingdom, Jesus shows exactly what kind of king he is and what his kingdom is like. All right? Here's the first one. Chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. In this kingdom, he calls sinners. It's the first thing Mark starts out with. He calls sinners. So Jesus calls Levi, and he eats with his traitorous tax collector and his unclean friends. You know, when you think about tax collector, and you've probably heard this, that the tax collectors were hated. Um, no one liked them. They were the lowest of the low because they had... Uh, given themselves to be employed by the Romans, the oppressors of this people, and um, they were considered uh, cheats and traitors, okay? They were cheats because they contracted with the government. In your area, we need so many, so many uh, taxes, and what they would do was inflate that, right, and take more than what the government required and keep the uh, profit for themselves. So they're really, really, really low, okay? So who would I, in order to get the sense of how low they were held, I would say this. When you read about tax collectors, um, think in our culture of pedophiles, the lowest of the low, right? People hate them, want anything to do with them, right? Um, now, they're not the same as pedophiles, but that's how People thought about them. That's how their emotions were, would rage against them. And he calls these sinners, and the, and, the, and the Pharisees, of course, are really upset. What are you doing with these kind of people? And Jesus makes a statement, what? Physician comes to heal the sick. Um, now, he's not saying by that that the Pharisees are righteous. He's just making the point that the people who are worst off are the ones who need him the most, right? They're the ones who need him the most, and you need to stop making that judgment. He came to call sinners to himself and to his kingdom, okay? That's what we have to see. He came, his, his kingdom involves or takes in sinners, even sinners of the worst kind. So where do we see the glory and the loveliness of Jesus here? Well, the fact is, um, if Jesus were like any other king, he wouldn't be calling the worst, right? What do kings do? You know, you, you don't enlist the, you enlist the best, right? Um, David Halberstrom, who's a historian, made his name by writing about the Kennedy administration, and he coined the phrase, the best and the brightest, right? That's, that's who kings get, the best and the brightest, not the worst and the lowest, um, but that's what Jesus does. Isn't that interesting? Um, he did not come merely to extend his rule, to, to bring uh, those under his rule who would not necessarily submit, right? The people who wouldn't necessarily submit, but to change them so that they submit and enjoy it, 
All right, again, here's the difference between his kingdom and most, right? The people he calls into his kingdom willingly submit and enjoy it. All right, so we have truly a savior king here. Um, Verses 18 through 20, he is the king who brings joy. Okay, this is the section on why don't your disciples fast, okay? Um, And he's saying, well, why should they? The the bridegroom is here, like at at a wedding. You don't fast at a wedding. You celebrate. He says, so they're celebrating. Now, what's going on? It's because... Um, he's beginning to fulfill what the Old Testament says. So someone look up for us Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. We'll do that. All right, Garrett. And then someone else look up Hosea 2, chapter 2, verses 16 through 20. Are you volunteering over there, Caleb? Okay, I figured. All right. Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. All right, so here's God has returned to his people and it's time to rejoice. All right, Isaiah's talking about a day when God returns and the people rejoice. Hosea uh, 2, 16 through 20. All right, so you have these, these Old Testament texts that are looking forward to the time when, as, as in a wedding, there's great joy, right? And, and so what you see is that the fulfillment of Old Testament promises begin here with the coming of Jesus. Now, let me insert something theological here, okay? Um, theological meaning uh, where you gather all, what the texts of the Bible say and, and summarize and come up with a statement. When Jesus comes, he begins the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises. So in other words, what we see, the lifetime of Jesus is the beginning of the fulfillment, and they'll finally be fulfilled. Um, And and he begins the fulfillment. It's starting to find fulfillment in us. It'll find complete fulfillment when he returns. So this is what you always keep in mind when you're reading the New Testament. It's the already, not yet kind of a tension it's already, the kingdom is already here, but not yet, okay? The kingdom has invaded this age, but it hasn't completely transformed it, but it's here. So it's already not yet. So when you read the New Testament, sometimes the kingdom is, it's here, right? And sometimes it is, it's future. Well, both of those are true. I think some of uh, what, what I grew up with, 
the theology I grew up with, which said kingdom's all future. But, didn't, it, 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 but it's already not yet. This is the way to think about it. Um, when the Americans landed in France on June 6, 1944, Normandy, and then they got off, the, they, they, formed, they had a beachhead, all right? And then over the ensuing weeks, they kept moving inland. And all the part of France that they had um, taken was now liberated, right? But there was some of France that wasn't liberated. They had to still take that. That's how you need to think of the kingdom of God. It's the beachhead. It's the invasion of the future age into this age. So now we have an overlapping of those two ages. The kingdom of the future has invaded this age, and we're living in the liberated territory, if you will. But it's not completely done, so it's already not yet. So Jesus begins the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, particularly like Isaiah 62, right? The bridegroom has arrived. It's time to celebrate. All right? Now, in chapter 2, verse 21 through chapter 3, verse 6, you notice that I made a paragraph break at verse 21, and carried that thought all the way down to chapter 3, verse 6, because that section has the idea that the king who's come with this kingdom, this is something entirely new, all right? This is something entirely new. Um, In other words, what's this business about the old wineskins? You don't pour new wine into old wineskins, because when the wine ferments and the wineskins are old, they explode, so you put the, the new wine into new wineskins so that as it ferments, the, the new wineskins can still um, expand, all right? And so what, what is, what's the point that Jesus is making? He says, it is so dynamic, this kingdom is so dynamic that the old forms can't contain it. All the old forms they were used to, it can't contain it. It's, it's not just a repetition of what went before. All right? It's not just a repetition. This is so dynamic that the old forms can't handle it. It requires entirely new forms of expression. Okay? So, I mean, let's think about that. Um, We don't go to a temple anymore. Uh, We don't go there anymore. Why? Right? Because this this is something new. The old forms can't can't do it. This is, for example, the gospel goes out worldwide. There's no way everybody in the world is going to go to one place. Um, in fact, and I, I'm just kind of really running around here, running off. In fact, we have to admit that, um, that we are the temple. The local church now is the temple, and people are the temple of God's presence. All those things are true. The new can't be contained in the old. Um, it even changes the Sabbath. Um, now, discipleship isn't breaking the law, but, the, but there's a fulfillment that goes on. There's something more dynamic happening. And he brings up David, who's nowhere condemned for this action. And if you ask me why he's not, I'm not going to be able to tell you. <laughs> I don't exactly know how to answer that conundrum. But nevertheless, he's making the point that David's not condemned. And, the, and to the Pharisees, he says, you read the scriptures with the wrong lenses. You've distorted the Sabbath and God's intention. Um, this king brings rest, right? Um, and then there's the withered hand. 
He, he heals on the Sabbath, right? In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying that it's so new and dynamic, these things that you once considered just um, those old forms can't contain the new kingdom, the new approach. Um, he even says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, right? I am, now, listen, you just think about that for a moment, where Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was like um, the most, the thing that set apart the people of God. That was one of the things that really set them apart. Uh, and again, here's one of those claims to deity that we kind of skip over because this doesn't seem as radical as we want it to. But he's saying, to them, this is radical. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, that's crazy. That's absolutely nuts. Which makes me say this, okay? I remember C.S. Lewis said this. Either Jesus, this is what C.S. Lewis says. You, can, you, can, you can't say that Jesus is just a good teacher. That option isn't given to us. Have you heard this before? You know, a lot of people say, I don't believe Jesus was God He was a, or Savior. He's a good teacher. Well, the Gospels don't give you that, don't give you that option. You can't have that option. Either he is who he says he is, he's God incarnate, or he's a blasphemer. You've got no other choice. Here's a good example. Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the one distinctive that really sets apart the people of God. What do you do with that? Is, would a good teacher claim that sort of thing? No. So either you only have two choices. And I, I would suggest you say this to people who, who would throw that at you. Jesus is a good teacher. Would a good teacher say, I am Lord of the Sabbath? No. He can't. No. He's not a good teacher. He's a blasphemer, if that's not true. And, the, and they crucified him for blasphemy, and they're right in their verdict if this is not true. So don't let people say Jesus is a good teacher. We don't have that option. Either he is God incarnate or he's Satan incarnate. There's one or the other, because the claims he makes, and here's one claim that he makes, is absolutely out of bounds if he isn't what he says he is, okay? Notice what he says as he approaches the Sabbath and what, he says, what, what that says about him. He is a compassionate king. All right? He's a compassionate king. Um, and note as well that because the kingdom takes on a new form, it, is not, it can't be confined anymore to any one people or any one place. So what do we see here about the glories of Jesus here? Well, uh, you can rejoice in this king. Okay? You can rejoice in this king. His rule is not onerous. In fact, his rule comes to rescue us and to give us joy, not to condemn us. He is compassionate and gracious, and it's not confined to one people or one place any longer. Um, he conquers us and he introduces us to new ways of life and um, to new life in new ways. Uh, he gives us hope. Um, he's the Lord of the Sabbath, using it not to condemn, but to bring us joy. I think it's real important. You know what? In our circles, okay, in our reform circles, um, we tend to be reactionary people. We see a world that's going crazy that says, God is love. He would never do something like, like you know, send people to hell. 
And we're always on, God is holy, and don't forget it, right? He's more than love. And we tend to react to our culture around us that we forget some of these things, right? You know, we forget things like, you know what, Jesus really does love you. And we forget things like, Jesus is really compassionate, and Jesus wants you to have joy. We tend to forget those things, all right? Uh, That's why I say I think we're reactionary. We tend to hammer those things that need to be hammered, but we hammer it so much that we forget some of the other things. That Jesus really is about joy, right? He really is about that. Um, So we need to remember those sorts of things, I think, okay? Now here's the point. Here's the next thing, okay? So Jesus comes with with this new kingdom, but as we see in the next section, which goes from chapter verse 7 through verse 34, that's the next section, many are blind to the king. Right? So now he's going to talk about how people are blind to him and how some uh, respond to him. So again, I, I, just, I, I can't teach without reading the text, so let's, let's read it. I know it'll take up some time, but it's a good thing. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Oh, wait a minute, let me... Let me recount something. Remember he says to Matthew, follow me, and he follows him. Remember what we said last week, week before. And that is, when Jesus says, come follow me, people don't fall into a trance and like robots follow him. What Jesus was saying to this horrid, horrible person was, I want you to be my disciple. You come and follow me and learn from me. You're the kind of people I want, okay? Which just is not what we would think, right? By the way, that ought to tell us something, too, about how we respond to unbelieving and the sinners and the worst, right? Um, I'm going to rant for a little bit on that. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. This is what I often say when I have to teach somewhere on a difficult subject. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? We are watching a culture with homosexuality and gender issues and so forth, and we tend to forget that Jesus came to call those kind of people. But we hate the sin so much that we hate those people. And that's not what Jesus did. Okay. Now again, I'm not detracting from the holiness of God or, or anything like that. But, for example, we were in a conversation with, with my, one of my grandsons who lives next door to someone who flies the pride flag. How, what did he say? What did Ryan say? That, yeah, he said, ah, it just makes me so mad. I said, and Becca said to him, well, Ryan, those people need Jesus. <laughs> They're the ones who need him the most. You ought to, he was talking about he doesn't know his neighbors. And we said, that's a neighbor you need to get to know. Because there's... There's hope for that person in Jesus. So anyway, now, many are blind to the king. All right, so let's look at verses 7 through 34. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from beyond Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he is all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases passed, pressed around him to touch him. 
And whenever the unclean spirits saw them, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered against that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they, they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay? So many cannot see the king because they're blinded. Um, They don't have eyes of faith. So one group here is the Pharisees. They're blinded by their traditions, okay? They have their traditions, and they are blinded to the glory of Jesus because of those traditions. And they make an absolutely ludicrous statement that that he is defeating demons by the power of Satan, all right? So they care so much for their traditions that they utter blasphemy. They are so committed to their traditions that they say this foolish thing. Um, you know, if they had read the, um, the Old Testament, um, they could have seen the humble origins of, of a king, right? The whole Old Testament points to Jesus, and they, they should have seen that. Uh, but they didn't. They had their traditions, which caused them to say this foolish and blasphemous thing. Okay? By the way, do we have any traditions that might blind us to the loveliness of Jesus? I mean, this isn't just written to tell us that, oh, those Pharisees, shame on them, they're bad people. But you've got to ask the question. This is written to the church, so ask the question. What are some traditions that we might have that blind us to the glories of Jesus? Do we get so wrapped up in, in some of our traditions that we don't see Jesus, Right? We obscure his glory. We obscure his love and his grace. And then, not only the Pharisees, but do you notice somebody else who doesn't see the glories of Jesus? What's the, um, what's, um, 
What's another group of people that don't see um, that don't see Jesus? Can you pick them out? Yeah, his family thinks he's what? That he's mad, right? So, what do you think caused their blindness, or what contributed to their blindness? What would you say? What do you think it might have been? It's his family now. He's just Jesus, right? He's just a brother. Yeah, he's, he's the oldest brother, right? You know how older brothers are. They're always telling the others what they can do. And what makes it worse? This is, I tried to imagine this. Can you imagine what it's like to grow up in a household where your brother is perfect? <laughs> Given our own sinful tendencies, I'll bet they hated that. I bet they really hated that. But I think it's familiarity. I mean, this, like Becca said, it's just Jesus, right? What's he doing now? Um, let me throw a freebie in here. It's not in my notes. It's not even in this text. But I remember counseling um, some young people who, who, when I'm counseling with them, I can remember one in particular. He's sitting there with his parents. And I said, what do you think is the problem? He says, they just don't understand me. They just don't understand me. And, of course, the issue is, well, whether they understand you or not, you still have to do what God says. But I remember going to Luke where, you remember where they left Jesus behind? Right? He was, they were headed back home. And, they, I mean, this 12-year-old kid was so trustworthy they, that they didn't see him for two days and they didn't think anything of it. And then they realized he's not with the pilgrims, so he goes back. They find him in, in Jerusalem talking to the, to the teachers, the rabbis and stuff. And um, it says that at the very end of that chapter, they took him home, and at the very end of the chapter, it says, and Jesus submitted to them, and he grew in wisdom and stature. Okay? And I can remember um, saying to this young person, you know, it's interesting. Maybe your parents don't understand you. I'm not saying you're wrong. But let me, let me ask you something. Do you think... Um, here is Jesus, the only perfect child, right? Do you think his parents understood him? No. In fact, this is the only perfect child, and what does it say? He submitted to imperfect parents, right? Parents who probably didn't understand him, parents who were absolutely, they were imperfect, and it says he submitted to them, right? So, by the way, you know, Keep that in mind when someone says, my parents are fools and, right, they don't get it. Well, there's a good example. There's still submission. Anyway, his family thinks that he's mad. Um, they know his humble origins. They know what he's like. They know he worked in the shop with, every, with, his, with dad. And they knew all this kind of stuff. And he can't possibly be king. He must be mad. So, again, the question to us is, what familiar, familiarity um, blinds us to the glory of Jesus, right? And I think this is one that, that we have to think about because you're faithful in coming to church, you're faithful in reading the word, you're faithful in all those things. And so I, I have to ask myself, why is it that I don't 
oftentimes my heart doesn't rejoice at Jesus. Um, I think it's because we become too familiar. Yeah, okay. Right? Um, we're looking for something more. We're, we're looking for more than the ordinary means of grace. We're looking for all kinds of things. And, and so we tend to be familiar. Familiarity can also do that. Now, do you notice in this text who does recognize Jesus? So the Pharisees don't recognize him. His family don't recognize him. But who does? Nope. Who are the ones that recognize who Jesus is? The demons themselves. The demons recognize who he is. Okay? Um, they're the, and, and, and he tells them, keep quiet. Right? Um, but then he appoints messengers, as we see here. He appoints messengers to go out and uh, proclaim um, who he is. By the way, again, if you look at that, if you look at that um, group of, of apostles, of disciples that he calls out, I'm fascinated by that. Because here's one thing. Here's the one thing that really strikes me. You got Matthew the tax collector, and you also have um, Simon the zealot. Now I want you to think about this. Matthew is an oppressor. He's employed by their oppressors. Oppressors. He is a guy who works for the Romans. The zealots. Who could I compare them to? They're the they're the right wing extremists. They're the revolutionaries. The zealots were the guys who would um, kill, kill people who betrayed them. All right, there was a group of zealots who were named after a dagger. I can't remember the name now. And they were the kind of people that's like if you were known as a tax collector or something, they would kind of slip up to you in a crowd and just kind of slip in the knife and do you in and walk away. The zealots were really crazy um, well, that group was crazy. The zealots were the, were the ones who were incredibly zealous for the nation and saying, we've got to rid ourselves of this oppressor. So think about that. You have a tax collector who works for the oppressors. You have Simon, who absolutely hates the oppressors. And Jesus calls them both and puts them together. All right? Man, don't lose the radical nature of that. That's crazy. That is really nuts that Jesus puts these two guys together. All right? Um, you got James and John. You know, they're the guys who, when they go to a Samaritan village and the Samaritans don't receive them, they say, you want us to call down fire on them? I mean, you know, that's why they're called the Sons of Thunder. They probably were really, I don't know, um, passionate guys. Okay? So anyway, that's really interesting to me. But you see the glories of Christ even when he's not recognized. You see the glory of his might. He's a strong man. Come Satan. What Jesus is saying here is that I don't do this by Satan. I'm the strong man who plunders his house and I can take whatever I want from him. You know, I can, uh, he's intent on saving a people. He can save sinners in Satan's grip at will. 
He can go in and plunder him and take everything that he has. He's intent on saving a people. Um, So when you think about that kind of strength, so again, I want you to start thinking this way. When you start thinking about Jesus as being the one who plunders Satan, can take whatever he wants, what difference is that going to make at home? What difference is that going to make at your work? If you think about Jesus that way, okay? Um, And I confess, I confess to you that that too often I don't think about Jesus that way, okay? Um, he's casting out demons. He can do whatever he wants. Um, real quickly, what is this unforgivable sin? And the shorthand way of saying this is, if you've committed the unforgivable sin, you don't care whether you're going to be forgiven or not. You're not going to worry about it. If you've committed the unforgivable sin, it's not going to be a worry for you. The unforgivable sin is essentially calling what is clearly good evil, right? And attributing demonic power uh, to Jesus. And not just saying it, but truly believing that. And it's a belief that will never be dislodged, okay? So that forgiveness isn't possible. I could tell you stories about all that. I remember one guy in particular would call me every day. He called me from Kentucky. I don't even know how he got hold of my name, but he would, every day, he said, I think I committed the unforgivable sin. And every day I'd talk to him about it. And, um, and then I started wondering if maybe he, he wasn't serious as just playing games. But anyway, you see the glory of his love. So you see the glory of his might. You see the glory of his love. Do um, you notice... In one section, the family thinks he's mad, but then he looks at the people he's talking to and says, what about them? That's in verses, um, is it 34? Yeah, 33 and 34. What does he say about those people? They're his family. Okay, they're his family. Um, You know, that should say... That should say something to us. Discipleship is not, it is, but not only denying yourself, crucifying yourself, and following Jesus. It's not the hardship. It's not just the battles we, the spiritual battles we fight. Discipleship is also meaning I'm family. Jesus looks at me as family, okay? I think, again, that's important. We, we emphasize something so much we forget these things, um, that Jesus really, really loves us. Um, in verses 13 through 19, you see the glory of his servants. That is, these are the ones who are going to advance the kingdom. He gives them power to preach and to cast out demons. These guys, these, this motley crew is the one who will advance his kingdom. Okay? So those whom God has called into the service of the king have a vital part in that mission. Right? So it's important, I think, to see that um, we're not only family, but we're also called to, um, or these guys were called to advance his kingdom. Okay? Well, I think we need to quit. So um, let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Thanks, Father, for, for our time together again. We anticipate your blessings as you meet with us in the, in the service. We pray, Father, that you would just be at work for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.